That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to another riveting episode of Without a Country. I am Corinne Fisher. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am trying I'm trying to make my chair higher today, but I might adjust it. That's the big update from the newsroom. I know you guys were all wondering, wow, we can see less computer and more shirt. And I thought that was kind of the approach. But here we are wearing my Cindy Lauper, She's So Unusual shirt, a classic. If you've never listened to that album, go listen to it now. Um, all right. First uh, order of business, Washington, D.C. This is the week. We've been promoting this state forever. Uh, ticket sales don't reflect that, but that's fine. Uh, w- come to see me at the D.C. Comedy Loft. I know you're like, what the fuck is the D.C. Comedy Loft? Well, it's the B room. It's what happens when you sell less tickets. You go to that room. I'm very transparent here on this show. I know most people say, why aren't you at the... Uh, why aren't you at the improv? Well, because I'm at the DC Comedy Loft, okay? Because less people are buying tickets to see my shows, okay? That's what's happening. Tr- full transparency. It's going to be a great show, though. I love going on uh, the road with Chloe and just kind of doing my hour and uh, chatting with the audience, and it feels more like a New York City comedy club when you are just one-on-one with the people. So make sure to buy a ticket. I mean, I guess I shouldn't feel bad. There are literally people who were on SNL that are in the smaller room at this venue. Um, But yeah, buy a ticket. And the coolest thing you can do is... Yes, like you listen to the show, but in order to make someone's career bigger, you got to bring people who don't know me. Um, I I don't like to play the female comic card a lot, but people do not go uh, cold see female comedians. It's like a it's like a thing that doesn't happen. You can literally be an unknown male road comic and exist your entire uh, career with people in the seats at your shows and do absolutely fine. I would name ex boyfriends, but I'm not being petty today uh, who have done such a thing. People do not see uh, female comics if they don't know them. So bring someone to the show that you think would like my material. Like it, and, and it doesn't have to be a, a woman. It could be your boyfriend. It could be your dad. I actually, I am going to say, dads fucking love me. So definitely, if your dad is alive, bring your dad to the show. Dads love me. 
Dad, dad is my number one family member that I knock it out of the park with. Second is brother. Well, I guess brother and sister are tied. Sisters do like me too. Moms do not like me. That's because they know I'm going to really, I'm going to fuck their son a lot. Um, and they don't seem to like that because a lot of moms seemingly want to fuck their own sons, which is something they're going to have to work out in therapy. But anyway, DC Comedy Loft. There is one show Thursday, two shows Friday, two shows Saturday. The room is a lot bigger than I thought it was. I thought because it was a B room, it would be smaller. It's the same size as regular comedy clubs. And that's not what I wanted to see. So it's even more hurtful than than I'm playing. I'm sure they love me. I'm sure they love me uh, promoting their club as a B club. But uh, come on, come on. We know, we know what's going on. Uh, And maybe you should answer your fucking emails faster when my manager calls you if you wanted me to be nicer about the club. Anyway, here we are. Uh, They did promote Without a Country on the website, which I thought was good. Um, All right. So I will see you this weekend in Washington, D.C. Usually a pretty fun audience. Sometimes a little uptight. uh, But I usually a fun audience and a lot of people who are fuckers and wackos or just have seen my clips on Instagram um, and want to see more. Uh, And if you sit in the front. I'm going to talk to you. We're making content, people. We are making fucking content. That is the world that we live in that, as you learn on this show, we are all complicit in creating. So if you don't like that, well, you were complicit in creating it uh, one way or another. Um, all right. So after that, oh, you might have caught me on Fox News Saturday night. Again, this past weekend, we did a live show. Me, Jimmy Fela, uh, Brian what's Brensburg um, and Tudor Dixon. Uh, and it was a really, really fun show. Ugh, the thrill of live TV, guys. I It was great, although I was panicked the whole time because, I mean, it was, like, very important that I did not curse. And also, on top of it, then the producer was like, and also, you know, from this angle, we can see up your skirt, so you have to keep your legs closed. And then also, there was I wasn't wearing a bra, and there was a good chance a tit was going to fall out because the dress was a little bigger than it was last time I put it on. So I did all those things. I kept my my tit, my vagina, in my clothing. So that's live TV 101. And then I also did not curse, and it was it was great. And I said slut on air within the first I don't know. 20 seconds because it was very unclear of what words we could not we could or could not say I was like obviously I like the big ones you couldn't say but they kind of just said like generally don't use lewd language and I was like you know what I'm gonna fucking go for a slut I'm gonna go for a slut and then we went on to say cocaine and meth and we had a grand old time we had a grand old time um so my and I'm officially known on Fox News Saturday night as the liberal I have my Spice Girls Spice nickname it's a little on the nose and not even and not even really because as you know here I like I, I self-identify on this show as liberal gone rogue but when you are on I don't want to say the enemy's turf but when you are on turf that feels like things could go awry at any moment when there are some jokes being made that are not your taste but you're happy to be there um you have to you have to lean in. And so on Fox News, I am the lib- certainly more liberal than the other people on the show. Uh, so I hope you caught that. If not, maybe I'll be back. Maybe I'll be back. And I wore my hair flat iron. They love to give me curls. I just like and everyone you guys all love when I have my the big curly hair. That's not really my thing. And then I so I kind of started my own hair and makeup and then they finished it and it was flat. And God, I, 
It looked so good. You got to dress like yourself, people. Mm. All right, moving on to the topics of the week. This week's enemy of the, of the state is Alabama. Enemy of the state. The whole place. I feel like there are some states that are just always on the shit list. Texas, Florida, Alabama. Um, and this week is no different. There's a bunch of bullshit going on with IVF legislation in Alabama that we will get to in a momento. But uh, Alabama... You are officially on notice. Uh, no, actually, let me just do the story now because I think I've been connecting them most weeks. It's not. I don't think it's the most pressing story of the week, to be quite honest. Um, but uh, I think it's you know it's one more infringement on uh, women's reproductive rights, and there's been just too much of that lately. So this is from CNN.com, Florida. Unborn child bill stalls amid concerns over IVF and abortion policies. Fallout continues uh, from the uh, Alabama Supreme Court's ruling that frozen embryos are children. So this is fallout from, you know, I know you're saying Florida. It's fallout from Alabama Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos are children, an unprecedented decision that has already prompted clinics in the state to halt some IVF treatments. Here are the latest developments. A proposed bill in Florida that would define a fetus as an unborn child and expand liability for wrongful death lawsuits for unborn children has stalled indefinitely in the wake of the Alabama ruling, which said those who destroy frozen embryos can be held liable for wrongful death. Uh, And like, that's interesting, because like, during the IVF process, like sometimes they just don't take so like, but you're not destroying them. I mean, can you just would you just be able to then pay to have them in the freezer indefinitely? That feels like a capitalist move. Um, yeah, people. Blah, 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 blah. This is so fucking weird. Okay, anyway. Um, uh, sorry, I started reading something else and then I got taken off track, you guys. Uh, okay, so a proposed bill in Florida that would define a fetus as an unborn child and expand liability for wrongful death lawsuits for unborn children has stalled indefinitely in the wake of the Alabama ruling, which said those who destroy frozen embryos can be held liable for wrongful death. The bill was scheduled for a vote Monday in the Florida Senate Rules Committee, but its sponsor, Republican State Senator Aaron Grahl, requested the vote be postponed, according to, according to the Tampa Bay Times. The measure seeks to revise language for civil lawsuits and allow parents of an unborn born child to recover certain damages in cases of a negligent death, the bill reads. But critics say it is written too broadly, as is always the fucking move. It's it's written broadly on purpose so that different uh, lawmakers and uh, decision makers can interpret it however they see fit, whatever side of the bed they wake up on that day, and could lead to civil lawsuits against healthcare providers and others. As the bill is currently written, nothing is preventing an abusive partner or rapist from bringing a lawsuit for damages against a healthcare provider or friends and family members of the individual who had an abortion, said Kara Gross, legislative director and senior policy counsel of the ACLU of Florida. And, uh, you know, it's always good news when we're talking about women's reproductive rights and immediately we go to abuse and rape. Okay, the worst case scenarios. CNN has reached out to Grawl's office for comment. Prior to postponing the bill, Grawl filed an amendment to exclude any legal abortion from civil liability under the bill. The current session of the state Senate's, uh, Senate's Rules Committee 
committee ends March 8th, according to the Senate calendar. Grawl told the Tampa Bay Times she's unsure of the bill's future in the current uh, session. HHSH secretary to meet with families impacted by the Alabama ruling. U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Becerra is in Birmingham Tuesday to meet with patients and healthcare workers directly impacted by the IVF ruling. He noted the confusion caused by the ruling as a consequence of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, which overturned the federal uh, right to an abortion under Roe v. Wade. If you're looking to have a family, all of a sudden you're told that you could face prosecution, Becerra told CNN's John Berman Tuesday morning of families in Alabama. Certainly you're facing confusion as to whether or not you can continue continue with your in vitro fertilization. And what are the consequences for you if they're not successful, if you have embryos that you don't use? It's just a situation that would not have existed if Roe v. Wade continued to be the law of the land. Becerra noted on the federal level... House Republic, which this this kind of also just again shines a light on how much people making decisions about women's bodies don't understand women's bodies because it's like okay, so like if you plucked the egg and you had it frozen, you and then you dispose of it, you're destroying an it's an unborn child that you murdered. But if you just let it rot away in, inside of you, yeah, that's fine. Because that's also because I mean like it, it almost seems like they just want you to keep fucking. Until you have no more eggs uh, left so that you're using any potential baby that might be in your body, which is completely ridiculous considering the amount of sperm um, that men produce because, okay, yeah, just keep doing it. Keep doing it. Just Nick Cannon the world. Uh, Becerra noted on the federal level, House Republicans have supported the Life at Conception Act, proposed legislation that would define the term human being to include all stages of life, including the moment of conception. The bill doesn't have carve out for IVF. What we have to do is go in the opposite direction and reestablish the protections that we had under Roe v. Wade because it's clear it's not just protections for abortion. It's protection for health care for families that are in their reproductive stage of life, Becerra said. Uh, on the state level. But Kara said, this actually might be good because this is going to get so ridiculous and it's going to include people who are are just, you know, waited a little bit longer or were having trouble um, getting pregnant. And then people are going to start to get really fucking pissed. And maybe then they'll care about people who need access to abortion. So maybe, you know what, maybe this is all for the best because we're getting so wild now. And we already saw that most Republicans were not into the reversal of Roe v. Wade. This, this was a, hu- a hot button issue. People did not like this at all. Uh, on the state level, Bacara said he hoped the pause on the legislation in Florida isn't a political move. I hope the pause is real. I hope the pause is making people understand the consequences of depriving families, women, of their rights during re- reproductive years, he told CNN. Texas governor supports IVF, stops short of calling for law to protect access in the state. The turmoil uh, caused by the Alabama Supreme Court decision has left some families fleeing to other locations. Again, this happens every time. Go to another location if you are fiscally able to, which many people aren't. So, of course, who's getting hurt? Number one, poor people. Uh, where access to IVF services remains in place. Although if you're doing IVF, it's basically only wealthy people are doing IVF. It's a fucking fortune. Uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a.k.a. Wheels, voiced support for IVF, though he stopped short of calling for a law to protect access in Texas. We want to make it easier for people to be able to have babies, not make it harder. Exactly. That's one of the Republican talking points, how uh, much they want people to be having larger families, not having these childless families. Well, make the world more pleasant to live in. 
Uh, the IVF process is a way of giving life to even more babies. When asked whether he planned to urge the Texas legislator to create laws to keep IVF legal, Abbott said he thought Texas would eventually address the issue, noting that he wants to keep Texas a pro-life state. All right, that's all I'll read from that. But uh, that story, you know, we'll we'll be having more information on it in coming weeks. Probably going to be a lot worse when and if Trump gets elected president. Mm. Hey there, responsible wackos over the age of 21 living in states where Delta 8 is legal. Do you want to get high? Do you want to get really high? Wait, do you want to get really super duper legally high? Well, then now's the time to go over to YoDelta.com where you can stock up on high quality lab tested Delta 8. Guys, you you know this ad by now. You probably could say it along with me. You could say it along verbatim. You probably have it memorized. You know that these vapes and these gummies are banging. That's why they keep buying ad space because people keep buying the product and people keep enjoying it. And they say there is no better way to disassociate than with YoDelta.com's products. So if you're the over the age of 21 and living in the majority of states where this is legal, you're going to head over to YoDelta.com and stock up on Delta 8. Delta 8 is found in hemp and can be legally shipped to various states, not all of them, but various ones to get you high. At YoDelta.com, you can find a mix of gummies and vapes for all your getting stoned needs. Delta 8 works, according to this copy that I'm reading and the friends that I have that have used it. Uh, And these products, of course, should be taken responsibly. Don't be a fucking asshole. So once more, that's YoDelta.com, the official Delta 8 sponsor of the Gas Digital Network. And if you use the promo code GAS, G-A-S, you're going to get 25% off. Once more, that's promo code GAS, G-A-S, for 25% off. YoDelta, home of the Delta 8 that will get you super high. Now, back to Without a Country. All right. It's uh, hot, hot topics this week. Uh, right after I left the the, the newsroom last week, um, I started reading about Next Benedict because I think that kind of broke a little bit when I was on air. Um, if you're not familiar, Next Benedict, uh, they are a non-binary uh, individual um, and they were – they died after an altercation – with some other uh, female students at a school in Oklahoma. And next was, I believe, 16, yeah, 16-year-old years of age. And this was at Owasso High School in Owasso, Oklahoma. And it's interesting because, I mean, obviously there'll be doing more toxicology reports. There's always the initial one, which is the one that I don't find trustworthy. And then like in a month or so, they'll they'll have like um they'll have some real medical uh, work that will actually perhaps expose the true cause of death because it's a little unclear. So what surfaced um after next died? So like the altercation was one day and then the following day is when next died. A lot of people are saying that um, they died because the uh, the school didn't like basically they just ran them to the nurse's office and all the people involved in the altercation were checked out at the nurse's office, which is ridiculous because they're saying that Nex's head during the altercation hit the ground. And if that is true to like have a school nurse. I know everyone's very sensitive about nurses, and and I fucking loved my grammar school nurse. Shout out, Miss Mrs. Austin, biggest titties in the goddamn game. That being said, a school nurse is 
they're just not equipped to handle this level of uh, medical trauma. Like they're there to check for lice and they're there so that you can lie down and get um, a, a cold pack if you have a headache. They're there if you get diarrhea and you shit your pants and you're embarrassed. That's what a school nurse is capable of doing. They are not capable of checking if you have if you have internal bleeding from fucking head trauma. So that's part one. They uh, the, uh, next does end up at the hospital, and there is this interview that has been circulating um, of her. I'm sorry, of them speaking uh, to the police in Oklahoma, and the police are kind of um, pressuring not pressuring them, but kind of definitely asking them a lot of questions, as in like. You know, are you sure you didn't do anything to provoke this? Uh, because a lot of articles kind of said, you know, what happened was Next was also suspended from school on the day of the altercation. But as anyone who has been to public school or worked in public school knows, that's kind of just the protocol for physical altercations. Everyone involved gets suspended. That's how it's been for a really long time. Um you know, whether or not that's the right answer, I I don't know. Um, and then now there's a lot of chatter, like, what happened? Why the next day did ne- next pass away? There's talk of the the head trauma that wasn't properly looked at. Um, and then there, I also went through, you know, some threads. And so, there was someone claiming to know them that said next had been taking some, like, medication to deal with the anxiety because this of the bullying that had been going on at the school for a long period of time and perhaps something went wrong with the medications, perhaps they overdosed, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's really kind of unclear. Um, but what is clear is that a student died um, and, the, and the school didn't really seem to be taking it as seriously as they should have. Like... You know, um, I don't know. Like, I'm not, you know, obviously bullying happens in schools. I'm not one of these people that's like, the minute that someone gets talked to, everyone has to go to the cafeteria and have a meeting. But it seems like the school was, like, pretty aware and, like, didn't give a shit. Um, And, like, from the interview, next seemed like they had, like – like they like it. It wasn't. It wasn't like a tar- someone who you would be like, ah, like, this is someone we're definitely gonna bully. Like next had their their shit about them. Like they like, like it seemed like they were in. You know, I don't know. It just seemed like not someone who necessarily uh like they could handle themselves. I guess is how you would say it. You know, because sometimes you meet a kid and you're like, well, obviously they're gonna get bullied. And also, it just seems almost hack. Like. You're going to bully the non-binary kid? That just seems a little hack. Like, if you're going to bully someone, bully someone because they're an insufferable asshole. And you can be non-binary and an insufferable asshole. That's just kind of not the vibe that I got from an ex. So, again, that story, I I need more medical information because it's just really unclear what the actual cause of death was. And I feel like anytime people try to talk about it immediately after it happens, it's always incorrect. You really need, like, a good month to get the proper cause of death. From the coroner, and I'm sh- I'm really hoping. I mean, uh, that her family uh, does that, and there's GoFundMe's and everything like that. So I'm sure I hope they cover costs for that as well, not just the funeral. But it fucking sucks. Um, and something else that 
fucking sucks. A lot of kind of like horrific stories this week. I'm sure you heard of the U.S. airman um, who set himself on fire in front of the Israeli embassy um, while yelling free Palestine. I have a couple stories about this because this is my main story of the week. Um, and it may, it inspired me to do a political word of the week since so often there are words in these articles that I go, I've not only have I never, don't I not know what this means? I've never even seen this word in my fucking entire life. That's because a lot of words that are used in the sources we use, uh, are specifically political words that you wouldn't use in normal everyday converse, uh, conversation. So this week's political word of the week is self-immolation. This one I've heard before, but I think it's a good one to kind of like add um, to your vocabulary Uh, and self-immolation quite simply is the act of setting fire to oneself especially as a form of protest or sacrifice often used in political protest so um, I am going to New York Magazine first it's not really like a conservative democratic issue I'm kind of going about this in a different way for the full circle. I'm going about this as in what happened to him, um, a little bit about his past because he does have a culty past, which I find interesting. I know you guys love cults. And then just the history of um, political self-immolation or self-immolation that was redundant um, in general. All right. So the first uh, article is from New York Magazine from the Intelligencer section. What we know about the man who self-immolated in front of the Israeli embassy by Matt Steeb. On Sunday afternoon outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., get those tickets, 25-year-old Air Force service member Aaron Bushnell placed his phone on the ground to set up a live stream. He then stood before the embassy gates and lit himself on fire while shouting free Palestine in a horrific protest against the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza. Below is everything we know about Bushnell, who died from his wounds on Sunday night. And uh, if you have never seen someone either self-immolate or been set on fire by someone they were being tortured by, it is, I think, the most horrific video I've ever watched on the internet. And keep in mind, I accidentally saw that one of the guy, of the guy getting eaten by the shark. There was some – I I watched um, – a video of a of a journalist being set on fire years ago when I worked at Oasis Day Spa. This is what we would do behind the counter. So, um, I watched a video of a guy being set on fire by, you know, terrorists all in the eye of the beholder. Um, a journalist being set on fire by uh, terrorists. And it was ju- really just seemed like the most horrific way to die. Because, you know, a lot of times when people die in a fire, like a house fire or, you know, school fire, building fire, you're 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 passing out because of the fumes. And that's kind of you're you're being asphyxiated first. You're not actually like igniting in flames like this. Multiple men in this video that I that I watched years ago torch this guy. You see a man melting. Um, I really don't recommend watching it, but I just want to kind of like explain that a little bit so you know how in what an intense form of protest this really is. This is not a fucking John Lennon, Yoko Ono hunger strike. Okay, this is real shit here. So Aaron Bushnell's background. Bushnell was a 25 year old member of the U.S. Air Force, um, which I can only imagine how much uh, PTSD he already had. 
uh, stationed at the Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio and originally from Whitman, Massachusetts. He joined the Air Force as an active duty member in May 2020 and has since worked in information technology and development operations. On his LinkedIn page, Bushnell wrote that he was looking to transition out of the U.S. Air Force into software engineering. In a statement on Monday, the Air Force stated that he was a cyber defense operations specialist with the 531st Intelligence Support Squadron. Bushnell grew up in a religious group on Cape Cod called the Community of Jesus, whose former members have come forward alleging abuse and a rigid social structure. According to a family friend and former Community of Jesus member who spoke with the Washington Post, he was raised in a religious compound in Orleans associated with the group. The friend told the Post that young people in the Community of Jesus often join the military, moving from one high-control group to another high-control group. Because as you know, from our deep dives into various cults on this show, like that's what you come to know. You feel comfortable in that environment. You don't, it, it's very rare that someone just like out of nowhere joins a cult. The, the, the breadcrumbs are laid before that. Uh, friends who spoke with the Post say that while Bushnell was stationed in San Antonio, he was attending events for a socialist organization and delivered food to people on the street. Friends state that his contract with the military was to expire in May and he was looking for a career transition. Following the police killing of George Floyd, they say he had become more open in his objection to the military. On uh, Sunday, hours before he went to the Israeli embassy, Bushnell texted a friend who shared the message with the Post. It says, I quote, I hope you'll understand. I love you. Bushnell wrote. Um, This doesn't even make sense, but I feel like I'm going to miss you. Um, and, And just a heads up. Just for someone in a high suicide rate profession, moi, if someone, if you see something like that, if someone texts you that, if you see something on Twitter like that, I I had an incident where someone, so this is a fucking weird ass story, but basically like a comic who I didn't know, but I do, com- I do consider all, co- like my, the way I live is like all comics are part of my family, whether I know them or not. That's just the way I live. Um, And so a comic that I don't know, uh, but who lives in LA and we had mutual friends put up this tweet in the middle of the night. It was like three in the morning. I was of course talking to some fucking stunt man because that's what I'm always doing. Um, flirty, flirty. And uh, he uh, tweeted this really cryptic, what felt like suicidal tweet. And so I fucking dropped everything and, like, the guy I was talking to, like, also in the entertainment business, not a comic. Well, yes, actually, he is a comic, but primarily a stuntman. And he was, like, he didn't seem really, like, he he was bothered by the tweet. And I was, like, it's not crazy. Like, people are constantly committing suicide in comedy. So um, it's not crazy that, you know, I would see this. So anyway, I called the Los Angeles the uh, police department. I call other comics. I find this guy's address. I send the police to his house to do a wellness check. Like I did everything because listen, it's better to do something and whatever. What am I going to be embarrassed that I tried to help? It's like, God, no, I'm not embarrassed. Like whatever. It's better to do overkill in a situation like that than to just fucking get a message that feels suicidal and go, Oh, I guess I'm going back to sleep. Um, and, and the, it's turns out this guy wasn't suicidal. He was on a plane and he had a time tweet set up for if the plane crashed and he forgot to take it all down after the plane landed. 
And this is what he told me. And he forgot to take it down after the plane landed and then went to sleep. And so I was like, it was a death related tweet. Like I was, it was a goodbye. I wasn't, you know, over dramatizing it, but that's what it was. So if if someone sends you something like that, like you can send the police to do a wellness check. That's something you can do. You know, in this world of technology, we know where people are. We can locate them easily. Like use it for fucking good, not evil for just a second. identities as anarchists and what kinds of risks and sacrifices were needed to be effective according to the post i would love to talk to this friend because i think this friend's a little bit liable um the self uh, although if you want to kill yourself in protest i guess that's really your choice um the self-immolation at the embassy uh hours before lighting himself on fire bushnell posted a twitch link on his facebook page with the caption Many of us like to ask ourselves, what would I do if I was alive during slavery or the Jim Crow South or apartheid? What would I do if my country was committing genocide? The answer is you're doing it right now. Shortly before 1 p.m. on Sunday, and I don't, I don't even disagree with that sentiment. Um, shortly before 1 p.m. on Sunday, Bushnell began his live stream and walked toward the Israeli embassy with an insulated water bottle full of flammable fluid. Uh, quote, I will no longer be complicit in genocide, he said in his video. I am about to engage in an extreme act of protest, but compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it's not extreme at all. This is what our ruling class has decided will be normal. Bushnell then placed his phone on the ground and walked to the gates of the embassy where he doused himself in liquid from the bottle. Free Palestine, he said, as he struggled to light himself. A law enforcement officer approached asking, can I help you, sir? Okay, that seems like an underreaction. At this point, Bushnell lit himself on fire, screaming free Palestine. As Bush, And again, it's like, I often wonder, like, what kind of training are law enforcement officers getting? Because, like, it's not like this guy fucking invented self-immolation, especially when, especially officers who work in Washington, D.C., you think would be trained to recognize this and not be like, can I help you? <laughs> like, you you think you would be like, oh, I see. I think I have an idea of what's going on here. As Bushnell screamed in pain, a law enforcement officer off camera yells at him to get on the ground I just say, I mean, at any point will the cops handle anything in a, in a good way? That's just like being yelled at when you're when you're setting yourself on fire for protest. I just don't feel like that's the correct approach. A second officer yelled at uh, at the first. I don't need guns. I need fire extinguishers. That person's doing their job. By the time D.C. fire and EMS arrived on the scene, the fire had been put out. The aftermath and Bushnell's death. An incident report filed by a Secret Service agent states that they received a distress call regarding an individual exhibiting signs of mental distress outside the Israeli embassy. And again, like you think like in time like these like would we not have extra security outside the Israeli embassy like would you not have you know you you think you would almost like be prepared on location for something like self-immolation for a shooting for some you know for 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 someone trying to poison themselves it seems like you should be ready for these things uh, but we're never ready. We that's not the American way. We wait till things get really bad and then we try to put a little band-aid on it. Um 
The Secret Service is responsible for foreign embassy security, FYI, it says in the article. Before the Secret Service officers could uh, engage, Bushnell doused himself with an unidentified liquid and set himself on fire. The Secret Service officers promptly intervened, extinguishing the flames before the arrival of the fire department, which, yeah, okay, good. Bushnell was subsequently transported to a local hospital due to the burn sustained from the incident. The report states that Bushnell was pronounced dead at 10.06 p.m. on Sunday. In the hours before his death, Bushnell emailed several left leaning websites alerting them to his highly disturbing final act today i am planning to engage in an extreme act of protest against the genocide of the palestinian people read the email which was forwarded to the bbc so so many people know uh, bushnell's video was taken down by twitch for violating its terms of service though edited versions blurring out his burning figure are circulating on social media um i saw like a still of it the secret service and the bureau of alcohol tobacco firearms and explosives are investigating crazy what i know we've gone over this before but crazy that those are all together uh are investigating the incident along with the metropolitan police department prior to his death he emailed several left-leaning websites stating that he was planning to engage in extreme active protests against the genocide of the palestinian people um Bushnell's act was not the first self-immolation in apparent protest of the Israel-Hamas war. In December, a woman lit herself on fire in front of the Israeli consulate in Atlanta in what police described as an act of extreme political protest over the war. The woman survived but sustained third-degree burns over her entire body and was hospitalized in critical condition. And, like, not to make light of the situation, but a little bit, like— this woman didn't even get coverage because she didn't actually die. And now she's just walking around with third degree burns over her entire body. Like I actually, it's interesting because we haven't talked a lot about extreme forms of political protest on this show. And it's something that I've like definitely thought about a lot, you know, kind of things like chaining yourself to like a nuclear, you know, unit or something. Um, or, you know, attaching yourself to a tree as it's been getting shut down. Obviously self-immolation, probably the most um, dramatic of it. And then there's a, there's a part of me that feels like some of the shootings that we experience, like, is that cannot be categorized under political protest? Like, do, do you have to do you have to kill oneself for it to be political protest or is going on a mass shooting of a certain type of person? It's like to me, that's political protest, like gross. You know, if you want to kill yourself, I feel like that's always, you know, on the table. If you want to kill yourself, that should be, you know, it's your life. Um her identity has not been uh, released by police. A 61-year-old uh, Army veteran who worked as a security guard at the consulate and suffered severe burns when he attempted to save the woman. Damn, that's fucked up. Since the Vietnam War, self-immolation has been a dramatic but rare act of protest in the, uh, in the U.S. Uh, vigils were held throughout the country on Monday night in memory of Bushnell, including at the Israeli embassy where he held his final protest. So that is the story of him, why he did it. Um, they all, New York Post did it a, a more dramatic caption uh, headline, as they are known to do. His said U.S. Airman Aaron Bushnell, who fatally set self on fire, raised an abusive Christian cult, said to engage in mind control. Of course, they got to use smaller words. They, they certainly are not using self-immolation in the um, title because everyone would be like, what's that, masturbation? Who reads the New York Post? Um, and they uh, also just made it a little bit more click clickbaity. Um, so let's see what things that they have. Uh, yeah, they say that he was allegedly raised in a mind control group. 
again, it's called the Community of Jesus. Can we pull up the Community of Jesus website? Um, if they have one, I guess I'm sure they do. And his parents appear to continue to have strong ties to the murky religious sect, which has reportedly been a vocal online supporter of Israel's war on Gaza. Um, you just exist in fear because you feel trapped, said someone else who grew up in that same community. The group's Church of the Transfiguration is about 100 yards from Bushnell's home, and its spire towers above their abode um, and the entire neighborhood. An American flag and another titled An Appeal to Heaven were flying outside of the family's home on Tuesday. Dark stuff. On the home's door was a sign with scripture from Genesis 28:17. He was afraid and said, "How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven." Bushnell's mom, Danielle, 57, has worked for the community's publishing arm, Paraclete Press, for years, and Aaron interned there when he was younger. Uh, his father, David, is a construction higher up with a local architecture firm, touts links to the Christian group on his Facebook page. The CBS source said members have been publicly dis- disciplined by being put in the middle of a circle as others scream at you about something you did and making you feel like the worst person on earth. Another ex-member, Carrie Buddington, told CBS, I definitely was repeatedly traumatized while I was there. She said she left the community about 10 years ago after being forced to give up her baby daughter for three years in the 1980s because other members thought the child cried too much. I would go and pick her up to comfort her and sit in the rocking chair with her, and the head of the house would come and yell at me for being soft on her. The mother said that she was eventually reunited with her child, but by then the tot didn't know that I was her mother and the pair had to rebond. This is gnarly. I think that's a pain that will always be with me. Yeah, I I would say so. Uh, A woman answering the phone at the Community for Jesus. uh Uh-oh, Mike, you're up for another prank call? On Tuesday, told a Post reporter, I'm not able to put your call through when asked uh, for someone to talk about the group. A man who identified himself as a pastor of the church also declined comment to the Post on Tuesday. CBS was referred to lawyer Jeffrey Robbins, who told the outlet, of course, none of these things you say were alleged by someone to have occurred are the policy of the community or in any way consistent with its way of life. Uh, The suggestion. All right. So this is a little just talk. Um, All right. And the rest of it, we know about how Aaron killed himself. But again, I just kind of wanted to double down uh, about how intense the group that he was involved with religiously uh, was, you know, as as a young person. The community of, uh, wait, the community of Jesus was tied to a school in Ontario that had been accused in a lawsuit of creating an environment of control, intimidation, and humiliation that fostered and inflicted enduring harms on its students, according to a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation investigation in 2021, so super recently. The CBC claimed it uncovered the school's strong connections to a mysterious and abusive Christian cult in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, referring to the community of Jesus of which Bushnell and his family belong. The suit against the now-defunct school was eventually settled for $10.8 million. That's 
a lot. We have the website if you want to see it. Sure, yeah. And it's like Community for Jesus is said to have been founded by two women in the 1960s, Girl Power. They were known as the Mothers. Guys, if you're going to start a cult, you got to branch out a little bit. Stop calling yourself mother. Everyone who fucking owns a cult, who started a cult, they call themselves mother. Think outside the box, okay? You're a fucking cult, for God's sakes. And we're replaced with new leaders after their deaths. The group's website says... It has nearly 300 members, most of whom live on its compound in Cape Cod. That's very funny to live on a, com- a compound, but you're in Cape Cod. Uh, the community includes celibate brothers and sisters and families and single adults that live in privately owned homes surrounding the church, the site says. All right, like, like let's look at this website now. Ooh, honestly? Okay. No, I, I, the top the top photo looked nice, but then it was exactly the uh, the level of HTML that I thought it would be. As we scroll down, they have a nice header with a little angel man looking over. I guess Cape Cod, and it says the community of Jesus is a fellowship of Christian disciples called by our Lord Jesus Christ and dedicated to the honor of His name. Ugh, that's kind of like a, that's that's the long sentence that really doesn't say anything except for like Jesus rules. Um, I, can you make this bigger? I can't read this from here. Through the uh, through the centuries, uh, Christians. Okay. <laughs> I'll just pull it up myself. Sorry, I was trying to zoom, and it's, it's not allowing me. So. Uh, what is it? Communityofjesus.org? Yes. Communityofjesus.org. Okay. Um, It's just so funny. Oh, oh. so on my screen, I guess it wasn't – the pictures weren't changing. But when you go – it's not just the angel uh, man sculpture that is looking over everything. But there's also like some pictures are just like of a house on Christmas or boats because they're in Massachusetts. That's so funny. Oh, my God. Church tours. See, this I, – I would, I would go for a church tour here. The only one that I'm really like not into at all rubbing elbows with is Scientologist. I don't even – I would not even set, set foot in a Scientology place. Uh, this says, Through the centuries, Christians have gathered to form communities in which they have supported one another in prayer, work, and fellowship. On a small plot of land overlooking Cape Cod Bay in Orleans, Massachusetts, that commitment has taken the form of an ecumenical uh, Christian community in the Benedictine monastic uh, tradition. Members of the community of Jesus who come from a wide variety of denominational backgrounds and occupations make professions of commitment according to their rule of life, including vows of obedience— don't like that, stability, and conversion of life. Founded upon scripture and the heritage of monastic tradition, the community of Jesus gives definition to its purpose as a living witness to the values and principles essential to Christian life and faith. Members of the community of Jesus are joined in a common commitment of love and service to God, to each other, and to the world. Now, the rule of life, it says, in the 6th century, Benedict of Nursia composed a rule in which he crystallized the best of Western monastic tradition, prescribing a standard of spiritual wisdom for community living that is still the basic guide for thousands of Christians who are committed to monastic life. Above all else, the love of Christ and the glory of God were to be daily aspirations of the monk, while the means for achieving these aspirations were grounded in the daily schedule of prayer and work in the relationships of the monks with one another 
and with their superior, and in the sacred vows of obedience, conversion of life, and stability. Drawing upon the deep tradition of, Christ, of Christian monasticism in the rule of St. Benedict's sacred scripture and the rich uh, charism of its founders, the rule of uh, of life of the community of Jesus describes the spiritual principles that inspire the life of the community of Jesus and the procedures that guide its govern uh, governance. Uh, so again, a lot of words, but pretty vague. But you, I guess if you have a cult, you can't be like so outward about it. But it seems like they're kind of like nun-like because the brothers and sisters of the community pursue a life fully dedicated to God. Oh, so the, it just they're just saying that is just nuns. It isn't like nuns. It is nuns. I The brothers threw me off. Isn't that what monastic means? Isn't that? Well, that's a monk. Monastic is monk, right. isn't it? Isn't a nun a lady monk? Yeah, I, yeah, I guess so. I mean, to me, like, when I think monk, I think more like, uh, I don't really think Christianity as much. But yes, I mean, yes. Because it's all, you know, because nuns are just you know, everyone, you know, ladies saving themselves to fuck Jesus. I Googled, is a nun a lady monk? And the answer is yes. You literally Googled, is a nun? I did. <laughs> and that's what came up. But who, who, from what, what source, though? Uh, Wikipedia. All right. Well, Wikipedia is like, I'll give it the 80% 80, 80 success rate for Wikipedia. Um, all right. Let's see. Uh, and then, so, and then also related to this self-immolation that brings us to corinne fisher's party topic of the week This is from NPR, and this, as your party topic of the week, you can tell people why self-immolation has been used by political protesters for decades. And, like, no joke, obviously, think, you know, if you're, especially if you're in your 30s, and I think even, like, these days, if you're in your 20s, um, and certainly older, these kind of topics, like, are coming up at parties. Like, you are talking about politics at parties. So why not? know the history of self-immolation like and why it's been used for centuries um for decades in political protests i think it's very fascinating if like you're going to talk about it anyway and it's also if you want to use it as a tactic it's a good way if you don't want to get in a political argument to offer something that is historically just accurate just a piece of history um that you can pepper into the conversation without having to if you don't want to uh, reveal where you stand on an issue politically. This is a fucking great tactic. Um, uh, all right. Warning, this piece includes photos of self-immolations. Well, I hope so. Mm. U.S. Air Force uh, Airman Aaron Bushnell died Sunday just hours after lighting himself on fire in front of the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. We know this. It goes on about the story, and then it moves on to a history of self-immolation protests. One of the earliest examples of self-immolation as a political protest occurred in 1963 when a Buddhist monk may, and may, so, and maybe this is why Aaron decided to do it growing up with all these monks. Um, 
named Fitch Kwan Duke lit himself on fire in the streets of Saigon to protest anti-Buddhist discrimination by the South Vietnamese government, which the U.S. was backing in its fight against communist North Vietnam. News coverage of the event, as well as an iconic photograph captured by journalist Malcolm Brown, made the death a global story. It even got the attention of President John F. Kennedy. Yeah, well, I would hope. Um, mm. Crazy photo. Um, Later, some people in Eastern European countries used self-immolation to protest the Soviet Union, and it has been also employed as a form of protest in India and South Korea, Biggs said. More recently, scores of Tibetans have self-immolated to protest China's rule over Tibet. At least 159 Tibetans have lit themselves on fire in Tibet and China since 2009, according to the International Campaign for Tibet, a nonprofit advocacy group. A self-immolation also played a role in starting the Arab Spring. In December 2010, Tunisian street vendor Mohamed Bu Azizi set himself on fire outside a government building to protest poor economic conditions and corruption. Demonstrations broke out across the country, and Tunisia's longtime president, Zine al Abedin Ben Ali, was forced out of office about a month later. The unrest in Tunisia sparked other protests across the Arab world. Not all protesters who self-immolate die. Hosni Kalia, who also set himself on fire just as the Arab Spring was beginning, survived his self-immolation and suffered life-altering wounds. I wish I could die, he told the German news website Der Spiegel in 2016. That's the thing with self-immolation. I feel like you just go up so quickly that almost, I'm like, I almost want to retract. I feel like it's just like, if someone's self-immolating, like they're, it's like a suicide bomber. Like they are, they have, made the choice to die they are at peace with it like it might honestly be worse to stay living i don't know i'm trying to think what what i'm gonna do in dc if i sell see someone self-immolating because like i don't think i can just sit by and watch someone die no matter what the reason is you know like we get we you know I, i'll be like oh you mean like we got your point we got your point um Trying to make him feel better. I don't know. The U.S. also has seen a number of self-immolation deaths in recent years. On Earth Day 2022, Colorado climate activist Wynne Allen Bruce died after self-immolating in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. In 2018, prominent LGBTQ rights attorney and environmental advocate David S. Buckle set himself on fire in New York City's Prospect Park, saying in a note to the media that his early death by fossil fuel reflects what we are doing to ourselves through pollution. And like these are, I feel like these things get like a lot of coverage, like, you know, day of. But unfortunately, you see all these examples of self-immolation and it's like, did any of them like really, you know, do the thing that they wanted them to do? Um, And in December, a protester set himself on fire outside the Israeli consulate in Atlanta uh, set themselves, and authorities found a Palestinian flag at the scene. Atlanta Police Chief Darren Sheerbaum called it an extreme political protest. If you're going to self-immolate, you better make it very fucking clear why you're doing it. How self-immolation works as a protest tactic. According to Biggs, it's no coincidence that self-immolation protests began to occur frequently in the 1960s, around the same time that television was emerging as a dominant form of media. Because this is something that, like, you got to see to understand 
its horrific nature. So this makes sense. You need a photograph of it. You need a video of it. You need people to see how extreme it is. This is when the suicide protest becomes part of a kind of global repertoire of protests in a way that before there would only be isolated incidents, he said. Protesters were able to reach a larger audience through changing technology and the gruesome nature of their protests made them stand out. But audiences weren't always receptive. Jack Downey, a professor of religious studies at the University of Rochester who researches self-immolation protests, says there has always been a question about whether self-immolation is such an extreme form of protest that it distracts from the protest's message, which is a super interesting. He said, because that's kind of what I started thinking about when I when I was thinking about um, you know, how affected, obviously, Aaron Bushnell was about uh, the genocide in Gaza, um, that he would then kill himself. And then I started thinking about, like, but it's like, okay, well, we already knew it was horrific. I think this specifically uh, Israel-Hamas war, I, I, I don't think people don't know how horrific it is. So you're not really point. you're not bringing attention to that. Like, we already know and now you're someone who's passionate about it and you're no longer around. And I know you said when you were around, you were complicit. Um, and I guess that's because, you know, he was still serving in the military through May. And so he was just like, I need to stop this now. But like you could also hold out a couple more months and then, you know, maybe make a bigger impact. Just spitballing here. He said some news reports as far back as the 1960s about self-immolators such as Quaker protester Norman Morrison, who set himself on fire outside the Pentagon in 1965, to speak out against the Vietnam War, have tended to pathologize the protesters and imply they were mentally ill. Well, that's also, a you know, a tactic commonly used with women. So welcome to the club. But like, if they're using it for self-immolating protesters as well, it's, I mean, there's a, a couple reasons for that. I mean, the government obviously doesn't want to make this a pattern, you know, so they have to say something's wrong with this person. It's, ah, oh, they're hysterical. You know, something's wrong with this person. Um, and you have to make it, you know, not, not, you have to make it unsexy to do. If the government wants you to stop doing something, you have to make it uh, as meaningless as possible and as unsexy as possible. You can't make these people into heroes. A again, I'm talking from the perspective of the government that doesn't want you to do these kinds of things. On one hand, that's understandable because it's kind of hard to imagine a more extreme act, Downey said. But he notes that it is also a way for viewers to avoid wrestling with the content of the protest itself and how bad conditions must be to drive someone to such extreme lengths. There is a way in which that insulates the reader from really considering the message, Downey said. But I think in my mind, it's kind of incumbent on us to actually perceive the thing that is difficult to perceive and to think about why someone would choose this type of act. Still, Biggs says he believes fervent protesters will continue to set themselves ablaze across the globe because the displays still manage to capture the public's attention. Even though it's not guaranteed to have the effect that it's intended to have, it nevertheless breaks through in a way that no other forms of protest can achieve, he says. And in this particular instance of self-immolation, I was thinking, like, I, I, it just didn't seem... I don't know, like it didn't seem like the form of protest that I would choose just because like if you weren't already moved by the um, the just uh, the the insane amount of of death and destruction in Gaza. Like if if that didn't already the uh, 
I wanted to say light a fire under your ass, but that that's not good. So, but if it didn't already, you know, motivate you to speak or learn more about what's happening, then like to me, what's one additional person, right? Because like these people are already dying horrific deaths. They're that's already happening. I don't know. That's just what I thought when I read it. But self-immolation, man, that it, it 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 is something that like when it pops up in the news, and certainly when it popped up in the news this week, it it did get my attention in a way that other horrific things I have I guess become immune to, just because this is like, wow. Also, because I saw that fucking video of someone lighting themselves on fire. So anyway, you can bring up those topics. Um, you you, you can bring that. Maybe maybe go to a 1960s uh theme party. You're in kind of like a little mod dress, and then you can say, you know what else happened in the 1960s a lot? Self-immolation. Thanks, television. All right, moving on to some lighter topics. Uh, this is an article from uh, Di- lighter topic. Oh God, this is a uh, this is an article from Discourse Magazine. Biden and Trump are both agents of chaos. Uh, this is by David Mashey. In different ways, a logic and disorder have characterized both administrations. I thought this this was kind of, I thought this was just interesting to kind of portray them in a similar light, you know? Beyond membership in the world's most exclusive club, Donald Trump and Joe Biden don't have a lot in common. The men are different not only ideologically, but also experientially and temperamentally. However, they do share one important trait that has marked their administrations. They both, in their own ways, are agents of chaos. What's more, chaos played a key role in sinking Trump's 2020 re-election efforts and may well do the same for Biden's later this year. Chaos characterized so much of Trump's four years in the White House that it's hard to even briefly list the highlights. But here are a few of the most striking. There were, for instance, the logistics issues, such as the frequent classified leaks and the ever-revolving door of top officials moving in and out of the administration. That, to me, was, like, really uh, noticeable. There were also the calamitous uh, things that happened on Trump's watch, from the mess caused by his so-called Muslim ban to the widely destructive George Floyd protests to the January 6th assault on the Capitol. But it was Trump's chaotic response to COVID that probably sealed his fate during the 2020 election campaign. While the president's vaccine plan has subsequently been acknowledged even by Biden as an important step in getting the country back on track, Trump's messaging during the first year of the pandemic was shambolic and at times downright weird. Biden correctly understood that people were sick and uh, were sick of the chaos and returning to normal became his most effective calling card during the 2020 campaign. And at least in one respect, he delivered. The current president has certainly run a tighter ship without the leaks and constant departures that characterize the Trump White House. But Biden has nonetheless been a chaos agent, too, just one of a different sort. Domestically, the president's policies on migrants, particularly his decision to end the remain in Mexico requirement for asylum seekers has led to the de facto uh, loss of control of the southern border as millions of undocumented migrants have entered and stayed in the U.S. Meanwhile, many cities around the country are increasingly being overwhelmed by these same migrants who arrive in need of food and shelter. And also, have has anyone been to Tom, um, yeah, Tompkins Square Park recently? Because 
there is a group of people, a large group of people who hang out there now at a specific, like at one of the entrances. And they they have to they have to be bi- migrants. Like I don't know what else is could be going on there. I was just wondering um, because it kind of they everyone just showed up one day and it was very odd. Wait, let me U.S. my migrants. M.I.C. Tompkins. If anyone knows about this, write me in. Yeah, yeah. Okay, here is this. Yeah, it look, NYC neighborhood turned into giant toilet. This is from the New York Post, so of course this is the fucking, of course this is the headline. NYC neighborhood turned into giant toilet as migrants litter park with poop, leave cups of urine on doorsteps. Um, I haven't seen any poop, and if I did, I guess I thought it was dog poop, although you can tell the difference between dog poop and human poop. Um, but yeah, I guess this is, so they're, so they are, they're, they're waiting for shelter beds. That's interesting. But I'm curious because it's – I'm also curious because it's all – it looks to be all the same – like all from the same place. But I don't know what – where these the migrants are from. I just thought it was kind of interesting. Um, mostly from West Africa and South America. Okay. Interesting. All right. So I was correct because that just kind of happened out of nowhere. Um, all right. Uh Let's see. Domestically, the president's policies on migrants, particularly his decision to end the Remain in Mexico requirement for asylum seekers, has led to the de facto loss of control of the southern border as millions of undocumented migrants have entered and stayed in the U.S. Meanwhile, many cities around the country are increasingly being overwhelmed by these same migrants who arrive in need of food and shelter. And all this comes alongside spikes in homicides and other crimes that have occurred over the past three years. I mean, just, you know, other than, like, blocking the entrance to the the park, uh, they're not doing anything. They're just chilling, um, as far as I've seen. Overseas, things have been even worse. The trouble started with the administration's disastrous withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan in the summer of 2021, an episode that sunk Biden's relatively good approval ratings to the low 40s, where they have remained, give or take a few points, ever since. In the run-up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, his public comments on the situation telegraphed American weakness and almost certainly reassured Vladimir Putin that he would not pay a high price for crossing the Ukrainian border in force. And Biden's dithering on providing sophisticated arms to the Ukrainians early in the conflict, along with the recent GOP intransigence over continuing to provide military aid to Ukraine, has given the Russians new hope that they might prevail. Finally, he has allowed Iran and its proxies to sow violence and chaos throughout the Middle East simply because he's unwilling to make the Islamic Republic pay a high enough price to deter its actions. For Biden... The chaos at home and abroad is likely to be a serious drag politically, more than it will be for Trump, who, after all, is no longer president. For one thing, there is a sense among voters that the administration is no longer in control of events. In a recent NBC News poll, Biden is losing to Trump on what might be called control-related issues. For instance, the president trails his predecessor by 35 percent on who is better able to secure the border and control immigration. But that's also just like right versus left. There are pretty much always going to say that the Republicans are are better at securing the border and controlling immigration because they're just harder on immigration. 
by 21% on who is better at dealing with crime. Again, very Republican. It's not Trump specific. And by 11% on who can improve America's standing in the world. I, that one is I'll give to them. These numbers are compounded by the fact that once voters get uh, get the impression that someone is a weak leader, it's often hard to reverse. And we do certainly um, think when we think old, we do think weak. I I think that's a specifically very American of us, but we do definitely think that. Uh, Ask Jimmy Carter. The loss of control narrative dovetails with another narrative that's also hurting Biden, that his age and physical and cognitive decline mean that he can no longer effectively do the job. Setting aside policy and politics, the fact that the last two administrations have been so chaotic speaks to how much more performative the president has become in recent years, which is something I think we really started talking about um, uh, when Barack Obama was running for president. That's when I really started to notice it. I think Bill Clinton was pretty performative, too, um, in a lot of ways. But it was really like... And maybe it's just because of my age, because I was older, so I noticed it more. But like the kind of casual appearances on late night TV shows, going out drinking, you know, you know, drinking with the people of a town, that kind of a thing that just has gotten more and more popular. Um, And it's become, you know, just like so many things, a likability contest. It's like, do you would you want to follow this president on Instagram? Uh, Since we don't have a monarch, presidents uh, have always been more than mere chief executives. But the Trump and Biden administrations have taken to new heights the prioritization of superficial gestures and pandering over the sound execution of sound policies. And again, I think this is really on us as a society. These people running for president, they give us what we want. They give us more of what we respond to. We respond to likability, yucking it up. And it it continuously amazes me how much someone kind of smiling and being funny convinces the country like this is some fucking episode of The View and how someone who seriously talks about the issues is like, oh, a stick in the mud. Again, I would love a stick in the mud to be the fucking president. That's who should be the president, a stick in the mud. Trump, of course, ran against elites. And so whenever... He appointed people with any demonstrated competence and experience. He soon unceremoniously dumped them or humiliated them until they left in anger and frustration. It's clear that providing bread and circuses to his supporters trumped doing his job. Meanwhile, Biden has pandered to the far left wing of the Democratic coalition, which helps explain his border and Middle East policies. To put it another way, he'd rather fail to advance vital American interests than be called a xenophobe or an Islamophobe. I don't really think that's actually true. I don't think Biden's that far left. I think the reason that he fucking won is because he's pretty centrist for a Democrat. Politics is like evolution, constantly mutating, in response to changes in the environment. So while the prospect of another Trump-Biden contest may prompt us to think we've reached some painful status quo, change is coming. Someone in either or both parties will eventually find a way to effectively run against the chaos and imbecility of the last two administrations. In the meantime, as my colleague Jen Tiedman pointed out in last week's Editor's Corner, we have only ourselves to blame for the coming Trump-Biden rematch. After all, despite what we might think, these candidates reflect the existing zeitgeist. We asked for chaos and we got it. 100%. I couldn't agree more. We did. We asked for chaos and we got it. Again, personal responsibility. We're, we're, and again, like Aaron Bushnell, although he 
had a different solution. I do agree that we are all we are all complicit in the things happening around us. Um, all right, and then. Uh, this was circulating as well because there's been so much talk um, about immigration and migrants. The Washington Post uh, talked about this uh, kind of pretty inhumane uh, deportation plan that Trump and his allies have been talking about. And so this is a this is a, the second piece that I write about this just because this one sums it up a little bit um, shorter. Um, and this says Trump's deportation plan is modeled on inhumane 1950s program, experts say. After hundreds of thousands of Mexican migrants were put on buses, planes, and boats during the scorching summer of 1954 and sent across the U.S. border in often unfamiliar parts of Mexico, the head of the Immigration and Naturalization Service declared the border secured. The so-called wetback program no longer exists, Joseph Swing wrote, using a derogatory slur for Mexican migrants in the agency's annual report released in 1955. But the military-style campaign, which used the same slur in its name, Operation Wetback, tore families apart and forcibly uprooted people in the name of securing the border, experts say. And sometimes those efforts turn deadly. And when you think about that, when you think that a fucking um, campaign had a racial slur in it in 1955. That's not that long ago. My dad was born in 1951. Like that, you know, that's not that long ago. That's really fucking crazy. So I think when we, uh, it's also a good reminder though of when we get so frustrated that things aren't changing, things aren't getting better, uh, we would, that, we would, that wouldn't happen. All right. So that's, you know, we are making some progress here. Um, now, former President Donald Trump is using the Eisenhower error operation as a blueprint for his vision, which he pledges will be the largest domestic deportation operation in American history. To remove the estimated 10.5 million undocumented people in the United States, of whom two thirds have lived in the country for more than a decade America, and, and contributed for more than a decade. Let's add on. Americans can expect that immediately upon President Trump's return to the Oval Office, he will restore all of his prior policies, implement brand new crackdowns that will send shockwaves to all the world's criminal smugglers, and marshal every federal and state power necessary to institute the deportation operation. Uh, Trump campaign, and, and, and you know, that that does have a bit of a ring to it. So we're going to hear a lot about the deportation operation and he's going to say it in a fun cadence and people are going to fucking love it. Uh, Trump campaign spout, uh, spokeswoman Caroline Levitt said in a statement to the Washington Post, she added that undocumented immigrants should not get comfortable because very soon they will be going home. Well, I guess they're going to have to go on 90 Day Fiance. Uh, but when describing the operation on which Trump's plan is built, experts commonly land on the same word, inhumane. The Eisenhower error operation has been referred to as such by think tanks, scholars, and historians who also said the policy was not as successful as Swing and others claimed. Historian Ke Kelly Lytle Hernandez told the Post that the operation that was publicized in 1954 was a racial terror campaign that relied on scare tactics to prompt people to self-deport. And I mean, you know, ICE was definitely using that. That was a terror campaign. People were fucking petrified of ICE, right? Uh, when Trump harkens back to that, I think we have to got to be really clear 
about what kind of law enforcement campaign he is threatening to unleash, said Hernandez, who holds the Thomas E. Lifka Endowed Chair of History at UCLA. It is not just mass deportation, it's mass racial banishment. Even um, uh, if the program doesn't come to pass, promoting such a plan only deepens the marginalization of Latino and immigrant communities in the United States. That was an issue in the 1950s, too, when newspapers were splashed with headlines about the surge in border crossings. In 1954, the New York Times described immigrants continuing to invade the U.S. in an unending and uncontrolled stream to every minute across the border, the headline read, which is so funny, uh, knowing what the New York Times is now. You know, they would never. They're, they're shunning their past. That same year, Senator Carl Hayden, Democrat from Arizona. It's sent also a- WAPO sh- throwing shade. Yeah, good. And good for them because I like I prefer the Washington Post because they're not Washington Post. You know, they they are definitely speaking up, but they're they don't have that like elite stench that the New York Times has. Like, it doesn't have the same we're better than you vibe, in my opinion. I think it's extremely informative. Um, Like, every Washington Washington Post article to me is like a mini, uh, like a, like a mini thesis paper, whereas every New York Times article is just a series of anecdotes about people that I don't fucking know or care about. (laughs) I hate, I hate that, that tactic that the New York Times uses, which many uh, politicians use it too. Uh, but I hate this, you know, like, take Bethany in Tennessee, for example. She couldn't get breast milk. So, like, I hate that. It's just like, give me stats, give me facts, give me a fucking plan. Uh, that same year, Senator Carl Hayden, Democrat Arizona, sent a letter to the president, Dwight D. Eisenhower, blaming American unemployment on the influx of wetbacks out of Mexico and aliens from other countries who are here illegally. So that uh, is the political version of uh, they're taking our jobs on South Park. All right. Immigration from Mexico increased in the 1940s with the establishment of the Brick. Bracero program, an agreement between the United States and Mexico that recruited millions of Mexican men to legally work on short-term labor contracts, a deal aimed at addressing a national agricultural labor shortage during World War II. But the program excluded women and children, Hernandez said, driving some families to enter the country illegally to remain together. Um, Because, of course, it's like, oh, we'll take you if you'll do this labor for a cheap amount of money that no one else wants to do and honestly isn't very good at here. Um, And growers along the border states often preferred hiring undocumented migrants whom they paid uh, lower wages, she added, obviously. Worried about losing too many of its workers, the Mexican embassy warned the U.S. State Department that if it control was not established, the Brocaro agreements would be overhauled, Hernandez wrote in a 2006 article about the Eisenhower-era deportation operation. As a result, the article states, the United States began ramping up deportations and setting off a decade-long campaign that climaxed in the summer of 1954. In June 1954, the head of the U.S. Border Patrol vowed to set forth the biggest drive against illegal aliens in history, the Los Angeles Times reported at the time. Under swing, 
then the commissioner of the INS, the campaign started in California and quickly stretched to Arizona, Texas, and Illinois. Hundreds of agents were deployed to local and uh, to locate and deport anyone suspected of being in the United States illegally, sometimes mistakenly targeting American citizens, according to historians. People were transported into Mexico like cows. And it's also not, not it's also not OK when we do that to cows um, in trucks or on boats that a congressional investigation likened to an 18th century slave ship. Columbia, Columbia University Historian May Nagai detailed in Impossible Subjects. According to Nagai, 88 people died of heat stroke in Mexicali after they were rounded up in blistering 112 degree heat. In another incident, a riot broke out uh, on an overpacked ship in the Gulf of Mexico, prompting 37 people to jump into the water. Five of them drowned. Chicago-based attorney Joaquin Sanchez, uh, 40, said the operation had a lasting effect on his family. In 1950, oh, another being New York Timesy. In 1954, agents arrived at his grandmother's home in La Farra, Texas, where she settled with her husband and six children, who were all American citizens. Sanchez's grandmother, Aurora, was excluded from immigrant work programs because of her gender. Her husband worked in agriculture, and Aurora sold food to the workers and took care of children. Sanchez said, but that summer she was was given just minutes to pack up her life before agents took her to a detention center he said i mean this is you know this is no different than when they were fucking hiding jews and in attics and then nazis would come and pluck you and bring you to a concentration camp i mean same fucking scenario aurora with a stern face and piercing green eyes sanchez said recalls explaining she had six U.S. born children, including an infant. Officials told her to bring the child, Sanchez's mom, Noelia, with her. Noelia and her mother were taken across the border and left in Reynosa, about 130 miles northwest of Monterey, where Aurora's family lived. She was fortunate to have, I believe, one of her brothers or an uncle pick her up, Sanchez said. Two years passed before Aurora and Noelia were able to reunite with the rest of their family in Chicago, where they still live. The traumatic deportation has affected the family for generations, Sanchez said, leaving them feeling conflicted toward the U.S. government. We're constantly put in this place of being incarcerated or policed or monitored. Monitored, he said. The point of the military-style publicity campaign in the 1950s was to conduct mass deportations quickly and on an impressive scale, Hernandez said. Officials wanted to address America's growing concerns about a border crisis and generate enough fear over deportations to push returning or deported migrants into joining the Brocaro program. Those goals could only be accomplished if there was media coverage, she said, so officials invited reporters to observe the operation and sent news releases to towns ahead of raids. Decades later, the deportation campaign is now decried as a shameful time in American history as 21 members of Congress put it in a recent letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland. In 2020, the Los Angeles Times apologized for acting as an uncritical mouthpiece for Washington as it covered the Eisenhower administration's operation. And though since 2015, Trump has flouted the operation as a, quote, very effective chapter in American history and one in which brutal tactics resulted in migrants never coming back, its success was deeply exaggerated, historians say. Although officials claim 
claimed the summer operation led to 1.3 million apprehensions. Scholars, including Hernandez, have challenged that figure, saying that those statistics include arrests from previous years. According to Hernandez, the number of apprehensions for fiscal year 1955 was about 250,000. Which is still a lot. Um, in 1955, the Congressional Committee on Appropriations also questioned the N- INS's claim that the operation had led to 540,000 deportations in California, especially because records pointed to about 84,000 apprehensions during that period. The operation, however, led to another unexpected outcome, Hernandez said. It helped increase the number of braqueros by encouraging immigrants who had been working in the United States illegally to become legal. But ultimately, it cultivated fear, Hernandez said, adding that Trump's proposal would repeat a dark chapter of history. For sure. Uh, With him making these threats, the campaign has already begun, she said. The dimension of it that's that's about racial terror is already afoot. And again, as is always the problem with immigration in America, we're all fucking immigrants. Like that's like that is what that's the that's the thesis statement of the country. So to them, be, uh, be so selective is tough. Obviously, the, you know, um, the country can only take care of X amount of people. Um, I mean, if we have more than enough resources, I would say, whether, you know, regardless of how we divvy them up, uh, we're very wasteful in this country. But like enough jobs, enough money, enough health care, enough those kinds of things. Um, but it it's always just a a conversation that gets so racist and so inhumane so quickly that you can't even bring up actual, you know, things that you might want to discuss because everyone, because you're either being like, allow everyone let, you know, do whatever you want. No one is illegal, which of course no human is illegal, but then you, you have to have a conversation about it because, okay, it's like, well, what are you doing? You know, for instance, with the, all the people waiting for shelter beds who don't even have, literally a pot to piss in um in Tompkins River Park like it's not even fair to those people like they come here they need to be treated as people but how do we do that so I think we're going to hear a lot a lot a lot about immigration in this um next election and here I'm going to round it off with this last story but it's going to be long um there was a really interesting piece um, on the free press this week uh, uh, about how bad therapy hijacked our nation's schools. And before we get into it, yes, this is kind of a long ad. And we've been reading a lot of these on the show uh, recently because it's like reading a book without actually having to read a book. This is um, an article. Well, it's by the author of the book, um, but it is like, you know, a long ad for her book. But I think her book is something that we want to talk about. And since this isn't a book club, this article is the best way to do it. So this is by um, the, about the new book, Bad Therapy by Abigail Schreier. You may know Abigail Schreier's name already. Before we get up in arms, I know she, she, okay. We remember her because she wrote a controversial book that was her first book called Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters, which pointed out the huge increase in the number of adolescent girls who wanted to transition to becoming trans males 
uh, attributing some of the rise by the egging on of gender dysphoric adolescence by social media to go ahead with transitioning. Uh, as Wikipedia describes it, Schreier states that there was a sudden severe spike in transgender identification among uh, adolescent girls in the 2010s, referring to teenagers assigned female at birth. And we did talk about this book way back when it came out. Um, she attributes this to a social contagion among high anxiety, depressive, mostly white girls who in previous decades fell prey to anorexia and bulimia or multiple personality disorder. Um, I would argue you can fall prey easier to anorexia or bulimia than you can to multiple personality disorder, but that's a different thing. Schreier also criticizes gender-affirming psychiatric support, hormone replacement therapy, and sex reassignment surgery, together often referred to as gender-reaffirming care as treatment for gender dysphoria in young people. The book was controversial, uh, but it was also brave. This is a writer saying this, not me. And since its publication, Schreier's uh, theses have largely been substantiated. The social media contagion is present quite often, and the willingness of bad therapists to shunt children onto the medical track has led some countries to consider hormone therapy as experimental. But soon after Schreier's book came out, there was a maelstrom of controversy, as always happens when anybody goes against the tenets of gender activism. And it also points out that um, a, a, a lawyer... Uh, for the ACLU even went so far as to get this book banned, which if you know anything about the ACLU kind of goes against what they are inherently about. Uh, so I found that to be very interesting. Um, but I just wanted to be, as is the format of this show, I wanted to be very clear um, who wrote the book and who wrote the article and you know and and just because she has this you know one view about trans people, and again, like, I, I, I don't, again, a lot of people would argue that that is, I didn't read the book, but like from what I've read about the book, it, I don't know that I would, it didn't seem transphobic as more of just like an, an exploration of something that need that like needs to be discussed in a way that's not argumentative and, and that's not just us yelling turf at each other, right? Because like, if it is true that, um, some people are just, or or ma many people, not many, I guess like 1%, people are born um, and need gender-affirming care, then it seems like you wouldn't need to get agitated about someone providing like a different point of view. You know, Christina kind of said, Christina said to me earlier this week, um, or maybe last week, she said on air, we were talking about something else. And, you know, she kind of said this famous quote, like, the truth doesn't mind being questioned. And I think that really is something that, that you should be thinking about every week um, in regards to politics and on this show. Like, if you're, you are right and you, and you are – and your truth is is the truth, then – why do we get so agitated when people question us on it? Why do we yell? Why do we why do we not why do we not have talk to people anymore? Right? It's like what where is that threat coming from? If you are so sure that you are true and correct and that you are living in this truth and that you are following it, you know, did you expect like to just march forward and have no one question you on it? Like that's not the way life works. I just kind of don't understand. Um, so this is called how bad therapy hijacked our nation's schools. Mm. forget the Pledge of Allegiance. Today's teachers are more likely to start the school day with an emotional check-in. Abigail Schreier on the rise of trauma-informed education. 
And I think this was specifically very interesting to me as a millennial because I feel like it was the millennials who really got into therapy, therapy terminology. And then kind of it devolved into people blaming bad behavior on like a fucking personality disorder. Uh, American kids are the freest, most privileged kids in all of history. They are also the saddest, most anxious, depressed, and medicated generation on record. Nearly a third of teen girls say they have seriously considered suicide. For boys, that number is also an alarming 14%. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with social media, body comparison, et cetera. Uh, what's even stranger is that all of these worsening mental health outcomes for kids have coincided with a generation of parents hyperfixated on the mental health and well-being of their children. What's going on? That mystery is the subject of Abigail Schreier's fascinating, urgent new book, Bad Therapy, Why the Kids Aren't Growing Up. Longtime readers of the free press will surely know Abigail's name from her groundbreaking reporting on our pages. And of course, again, as we said, the book, Era of damage um and the book is out is out if you guys want to read it uh in the book abigail heads into the breach once more the book makes the case that the advent of therapy culture the rise of gentle parent parenting and the spread of social emotional learning in school is actually causing much of the anxiety and depression faced by today's youth. In other words, Abigail argues that in our attempt to keep kids safe, we are failing the next generation of American adults. The best journalists are fearless, and that adjective certainly applies to Abigail, whose bravery. All right, well, this is just a little ass-kissing because she works for Free Press. But anyway, there's a lot of uh, uh, pages from the actual book here, which is why I wanted to read this. I just think it's an interesting topic. And again, I... It's not that I always agree with the free press. I just think they're really talking about things in an interesting way. So I usually have been including like one article from thefreepress.com, uh, as you've noticed, week by week, and in addition to these kind of more mainstream news sources. Most American kids today are not in therapy, but the vast majority are in school where therapists and non-therapists diagnose kids liberally and often in school count and offer in-school counseling and mental health and wellness instruction. Um, and that was particularly interesting to me when you think about the people like we who who we don't fucking know these people working with kids in the schools what the fuck is going on with them i don't necessarily want them you know giving excessive uh mental health counseling to my kid i don't know these person there's plenty of bad therapists out there a lot of them um by 2022, 96% of schools offered mental health services to students. Many of these interventions constitute what I call bad therapy. They target the healthy, inadvertently exacerbating kids' worry, sadness, and feelings of incapacity. And that, I mean, that's a tactic that's even been used on someone as old as me. Like, you know, if you go into the doctor's office or even in fucking therapy, they always try to make you make you find something bad in your childhood. And like that you, kind of enrages me because I go, listen, I have plenty of problems. They don't lie in my childhood. They lie 20s and beyond. OK, they lie in me getting out into the world and going, why the fuck is everyone else acting like this? Um and so that's an example of like trying to find a problem where there is none. And I hear stuff about that a lot. Like I'm like, guys, like we can we, we can waste one hundred and fifty dollars in an hour of our time talking about my childhood. But that's not where the problem lies. Uh, since a child's first mental or behavioral diagnosis often comes from school. The Child Mind Institute, one of the premier nonprofits devoted to adolescent mental health, provides an online symptom checker spe specifically to help parents or teachers inform themselves about possible diagnoses. 
I began to wonder what schools were doing in the name of improving kids' mental health. I was in luck. Each year, the state of California sponsors a three-day public school teachers conference to showcase its vast array of emotional and behavioral services. Immediately, I registered. That is how, in July of 2022, I came to join more than 2,000 public school teachers at the Anaheim Convention Center right next to Disneyland. At the convention, ankle tattoos winked over fresh pedicures and Taylor cardigans abounded and the occasional mohawk sliced indoor air cool enough to crisp celery. And like this, this is the part about her writing that bothers me because it's like, you don't need to let us know that you're corny and you can't handle tattoos in a mohawk. Like to me, that's overshadowing some good points you might be making. Like this is so corny. We talked about brain science based on a YouTube video many of us had seen. It explained that the brain is like a hand with the thumb folded into the palm. Our uh, amygdala is really important in serious situations, said the voiceover. This sounded right. We felt like neuroscientists. We lamented the burdens placed upon school counselors, now part of an expanded psychology staff, which oversees every public school the way diversity officers, uh, officers dominate a university. We were leery of these new bosses, but we had to admit they had a big job to do. Our kiddos were bonkers. The word we were careful to use was dysregulated. Counselors, that's so funny. Counselors uh, now routinely monitored the social emotional quality of our teaching, sniffed out emotional disturbance in our students, and decided what assignments to nix or grades to adjust upward. And it's so interesting that schools have been um, increasingly more um, involved in students' mental health, but it has not at all helped the number of school shootings that we experience as a country. So it's like, who are you? Who's the mental? What? Do you, who's mental health? You check in. Uh, we talked about the need to give kids brain breaks, the salvific power of mindfulness minutes, and the importance of ending each day with an optimistic closure. Our pure view was the whole child, meaning we needed to evaluate and track kids' social and emotional abilities in addition to academic ones. Our mandate: trauma-informed education. We pledged to treat all kids as if they had experienced some debilitating trauma. Subsequent interviews with dozens of teachers, school counselors, and parents across the country banished all doubt. Therapists weren't the only ones practicing bad therapy on kids, often traveling under the name social-emotional learning. Bad therapy had gone airborne. When I first heard the term social-emotional learning, I assumed a hokey but necessary call for kids to get a grip. Or maybe it was the new name for what they used to call character education, treat people kindly, disagree respectfully, don't be a jackass. Proponents insist it arrives at all those things, albeit through the somewhat circuitous. 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 But it means um, of a, from a circuit, though. Yeah, circular. Circular or circuit. Like it's circuit. It's derived from circuit, not circular. Mm, right? No. Sorry, I'm going to look this up, guys. It feels like a math term. I guess it doesn't really matter. Oh, it just so so just so just longer than the most direct way, like an ineffective way, making it longer than necessary. That's what it means. Uh, root of so so she's saying um, 
they're that that she finds their approach to mental health not direct. It's go, it, it, so I guess you could say going around in circles, although the definition didn't mention that. But yeah, like a roundabout way. So roundabout, yeah. Sometimes uh, described by enthusiasts as a way of life. Social emotional learning is the curricular juggernaut that devours billions in education spending each year and more than eight percent of teacher time. Many teachers say they try to ensure that social emotional learning happens all day long through a series of prompts and, and and also like older teachers don't take this shit seriously um for the most part because this is like you know if you're like over 40 you're like what uh through a series of prompts and exercises uh seo pushes kids towards a series of personal reflections aimed at teaching them self-awareness social awareness relationship skills self-management and responsible decision making morning emotions check-in. Forget the Pledge of Allegiance. Today's teachers are more likely to inaugurate this school day with an emotions check-in. Well, the Pledge of Allegiance is also fucking weird. As I was saying it every day in class, I'm like, this does feel fucking culty, you know? Um, I don't know that I hate an emotions check-in for the, fr- the for the top of the day, to be quite honest, and I don't even like emotions. School counselor Natalie Sedano advised our assembled conference room of teachers to ask kids, how are you feeling today? Are you daisy, bright, happy, and friendly, or am I a ladybug? Will I fly away if we get too close? I mean, like, for you know, for young kids. If I was in high school and someone asked me that when I walked in, I, I would shoot up the school. This prompted great excitement in the audience, and teachers jumped up to share their own emotions check-ins. One teacher said every day she asked her kids if they feel like it's a bones or no bones kind of day, uh, barring the verbiage from a viral TikTok video in which a pug owner shares the mood of his 13-year-old pug noodle. I mean, that's just cute. That's relating to kids. If noodle sits upright, it's a bones day. If he collapses, it's a no bones day. That is so fun. Sedano enthused. Love it. Thank you. I asked Leif Kinnair, a world-renowned expert in the treatment of anxiety, and Michael Linden, a professor of psychiatry at the uh, Charité University Hospital in Berlin, what they thought of the practice. Both said this unceasing attention to feelings was likely to make kids more dysregulated. And I can see that because it can make you it can make you hyper fixate on something that you, you know, you were kind of just existing and now you're hyper fixated on how am I feeling? How should I be feeling? How is everyone else feeling? If we want to help kids with emotional regulation, uh, what should we communicate instead? I'd say worry less, ruminate less, Kinnair told me. Try to verbalize everything you feel less. Try to self-monitor and be mindful of everything you do less. Less is more. There's another problem posed by emotions check-ins. They tend to induce a state orientation at school, potentially sabotaging kids' abilities to complete the tasks in front of them. Many psychological studies back this up. An individual is more likely to meet a challenge if she focuses on the task at hand rather than her own emotional state. If she's thinking about herself, she's less likely to meet any challenge. If you want to, let's say, climb a mountain, if you start asking yourself after two steps, how do I feel? You'll stay at the bottom, Dr. Linden said. Any th- weight to that being coded uh, towards women? Uh, uh, what do you mean? Because they're using she? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, always. Hmm. What, 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 what are you snarling for? No, I'm just wondering if that, like, I want to know where that study was from. If it was just, like, if they if they were just looking at, like, young girls in that case versus. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I mean, girls just also, you know historically have the ability to check in with ourselves emotionally in a way that men absolutely cannot. And then you, and then you kill us. Um, 
<laughs> ethical violations. In 2022, California announced a plan to hire an additional 10,000 counselors in order to address young people's poor mental health. A new law encourages California school districts to bill federal Medicaid for mental health services allocated to kids in school. Meaning however much in-school therapy kids have already received, they likely will soon be getting much more. California school psychologist Michael Jambona provides individual therapy sessions to his middle school students during the school day. Why during the school day? I mean, I understand if a child is having problems at home or something like specifically, but like just everyone? Jambona also routinely runs interference with kids' teachers on kids' behalf. Which I think that is very negative. One of the one of the best sc- t- uh, skills you can learn in the world is how to fucking bring up the problem with the person you have it with and not have a fucking buffer. Because in life, you don't have a buffer. In relationships, you don't have a buffer. Everything will suffer because we can't talk to each other. If you have a problem with someone, address them fucking directly. We even talk about that, um, you know, so, sometimes that even comes up when we're talking about the Me Too movement. And it's difficult because people be like, why didn't you bring it up? And like, you know, a lot of times it's because there was trauma in the moment. Um, but uh, before it escalates to something that is going to be traumatic um, in the workplace, just say, hey, stop fucking acting like that. You know, it's 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 kind of about nipping something in the bud before it gets bigger than it needs to be, which I think is something that they're talking about in this article a little bit. My teachers have special training in working with individuals with behavior needs and mental health needs, he told me. And we meet weekly and we talk about what's going on with each student and how we can approach them and support them when they need it. There is a big a problem with in-school therapy, an ethical compromise, which arguably corrupts its very heart. In a remarkably under-regulated profession, therapists still have a few ethical bright lines, and among the clearest is, or was, the prohibition on dual relationships. The relationship in the therapy room needs to be its own, distinct and apart, psychologist and author Lori Gottlieb explains in her book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. To avoid an ethical breach known as a dual relationship, I can't treat or receive treatment from any person in my orbit, not a parent of a kid in my son's class, not the sister of coworkers, not a friend's mom, not my neighbor. This ethical guardrail exists to protect a patient from exploitation. A patient may reveal her deepest secrets and vulnerabilities to her therapist who could then rule over her like a a czarina, a czarina, just a female czar. Azarina does her kulaks. Anyone possessing this much knowledge of a patient's private life may be tempted to exert undue power, and so the profession makes dual relationships off limits. Except that school counselors, school psychologists, and social workers enjoy a dual relationship with every kid who comes to see them. They know all the kids' best friends. They may even treat a few of them with therapy. They know kids' parents and their friends' parents. They know the boy a girl has a crush on, wrote romantically transpired between them and how the relationship ended. They know a kid's teammates and coaches and the teacher who's giving him a hard time. And they report not to a kid's parents, but to school administration. It's a wonder we allow these in-school relationships at all. The American counseling. Yeah. I mean, when, when, when you, when you really like, you know, get a, get a hold of your file or like know how much people in school actually knew about you. It is a little bit big brother. The American Counseling Association appears to have noticed. And again, they know all this and they still can't fucking help any of us. Uh, so what's the point? The American Counseling Association appears to have noticed the obvious problem. In 2006, it, re- it revised the ACA Code of Ethics. While still prohibiting sexual relationships with current clients, it decided that non-sexual dual relationships were no longer prohibited, especially those that could be beneficial to the client. 
As school counselors and psychologists came to see themselves as students' advocates, they slipped into a dual relationship with their students, part therapist, part academic intermediary, part parenting coach. Today, school counselors and psychologists commonly evaluate, diagnose, and treat students with individual therapy, meet with their friends, intervene with their teachers, and pass them in the lunchroom. A teen who has just spent a tear-soaked hour telling the school counselor her deepest secrets might reasonably be fearful of upsetting anyone with that much power over her life. But are school counselors and social workers exerting undue influence over kids? Over the past two years, I have been so inundated with parents' stories of school counselors encouraging a child to try on a variant gender identity, even changing the child's name without telling the parents, that I've almost wondered if there are any good school counselors. One parent I interview, and I mean, this is shitty, but it, you, you, it also is kind of like, you can make a lot of money as a therapist And like the way you're going to make the most money is not in a public school setting, certainly. So then that does make me question, why are those people there? Are they there because they uh, they don't care about money? They want to be in a place where they. Again, just a question. Don't get offended. If you're a great counselor in school, you shouldn't get offended. Um, One parent I interviewed told me that her son's high school counselor had given him the address of a local LGBTQ youth shelter where he might seek asylum and attempt to legally liberate himself from loving parents. There are good school counselors. I have interviewed several, but the power structure is all wrong. Grant a leader the powers of a monarch, and he may gift his subjects freedom, but what's to tether him to his promises? That's placing a whole lot of trust in an individual counselor's conscience. You might respond at this point, fortunately, my child has never been to see the school counselor, but more likely, you don't know. In California, Illinois, Washington, Colorado, Florida, and Maryland, minors 12 or 13 and up are statutorily entitled to access mental health care without parental permission. Schools are not, uh, are not only under no obligation to inform parents that their kids are meeting regularly with a school counselor, they may even be barred from doing so. As long as a parent has not specifically forbidden it, a school counselor may, able, uh, may be able to conduct a therapy session with a minor child without parental consent. School counselors are encouraged to make judgment calls about what information gleaned in sessions with minor children they may keep secret from the children's uh, parents. Let's see how much more. Okay. Or I think I can get through this. And again, um, if this goes off air, just keep in mind, uh, if you're watching it live, it will be, this will all be on YouTube. This will all be on the audio version. Mm-mm-mm. Uh, school staff who play therapist. Ever since her school adopted social-emotional learning in 2021, Ms. Julie routine, uh, routinely began the day by directing her Salt Lake City fifth graders to sit in one of the plastic chairs she'd arranged in a circle. How is each of you feeling this morning, she would ask, performing a more intensive version of the emotions check-in. One day, she cut to the chase. What is something that is making you really sad right now? That would fucking annoy me. I'd be like, we aren't. this is not why we're here right now. How dare you? When it was his turn to speak, one boy began mumbling about his father's new girlfriend. Then things fell apart. All of a sudden, he just started bawling. And he was like, I think that my dad hates me and he yells at me all the time, said Laura, a mom of one of the other students. Also, like completely inappropriate to have to do this in front of other people. 
Another girl announced that her parents had divorced and burst into tears. Another said she was worried about the man her mother was dating. Within minutes, half of the kids were sobbing. It was time for the math lesson, but no one wanted to do it. It was just so sad thinking about that boy's dad hated him. What if their dads hated them too? It just kind of set the tone for the rest of the day, Laura said. Everyone was just feeling really sad and down for a really long time. It was hard for them to kind of come out of that. This brings me to uh, this a second lesson of adulthood. Uh, one, as you you remember, is you know directly going up to the person you have the problem with and solving the problem with them directly, not having some fucking person do it for you like a little baby. Number two um, is uh, compartmentalizing. Okay, this is not not dealing with things. This is deciding. Part of growing up is deciding that you are going to deal with something emotionally, but maybe you're going to deal with it at 5 p.m. instead, okay? You, that's Because that's very different than not dealing with it. I would never say don't deal with something emotionally or put it off for weeks or months. No, no, no. But also, sometimes you just need to take your math test and you need to compartmentalize something else that's going on. And if you And, and you cannot, but then you will fail in life. Uh, a second mom at the school confirmed to me that word spread throughout the school about the AA meeting style breakdown, except this AA meeting featured elementary school kids who then ran to tell their friends what everyone else had shared. Thanks to social emotional learning. And there's also like value in like if you have a terrible home life, maybe school is is your respite from that. Maybe reading and math is your respite from that. And then you're then, then taking that away from the kids. They're not going to forget that they have a bad home life, I assure you. Thanks to social-emotional learning, scenes of emotional melee have become increasingly common in American classrooms. In 2013, the New York Times reported on a near-identical scene that took place after a California teacher conducted a similar social-emotional learning lesson with his kindergartners. With children especially, whatever you focus on is what will grow, Laura said. And I feel like with social-emotional learning, they're watering the weeds instead of watering the flowers. Advocates of social-emotional learning claim that nearly all kids today have suffered serious traumatic experiences that leave them unable to learn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they also insist that having an educator host a class-wide trauma swap before lunch. I didn't experience trauma till I was like, and I know this is not, this is unique to me, but to say that nearly all kids have serious, I don't, then I, then my question is maybe I am calculating what trauma is incorrectly. Uh, they also insist that having an educator, uh, host a class-wide trauma swap before lunch will help such kids heal. Neither claim is well-founded. I think they kids should absolutely have a trauma resource, but to say that pretty much everyone has like this substantial amount of tra trauma, I think is inaccurate. But the predictable result is precisely what Ms. Julie saw. Otherwise, happy kids are brought low and a child seriously struggling has his private pain publicly exposed by someone in no position to remedy it. That to me is the most important part. Sometimes when a kid plunks himself down on the rug for morning circle, he is in no mood to exhibit a painful experience no matter how much it might expand the class's emotional horizons. Exactly. We're using the kid with the worst home life in the class as our fucking little uh, experiment. We're like, oh, look at this. Let's, 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 let's f learn about emotions through this kid who really is going through something traumatic at home. This leaves teacher therapists with a problem. How to get kids to dish about their emotional lives when they really don't want to. Writing. One presenter at the conference, Amelia Azam, a regional mental health coordinator for Orange County Public Schools, told uh, you journal. That's how you do it. You have everyone journal in the morning and then read the journals. And if someone 
someone actually has something going on, it'll come out in the journal. Come on, guys. Told a story that seemed to answer this quandary. She knew of a teaching assistant who trailed a seventh grader to lunch. She goes out to lunch uh, where this young student sits and she always says hi to him. And she has casual interactions with him. And one day he told her that his dad was getting out of jail. Nobody else knew that, as Am said. Good therapists know that it may be counterproductive to push a kid to share his trauma at school. Good therapists are trained uh, specifically to avoid encouraging rumination, a thought process typified by dwelling on past pain and negative emotions. Literally, rumination is one of the fucking like things that you have when you have an anxiety disorder called obsessive compulsive disorder. Ruminating is part of that. It is not healthy. Uh, rumination is a well-established risk factor for depression, but school staff who play therapists rarely seem aware that they might be encouraging rumination as they stalk a kid at lunch, waiting to see if he'll open up about his father's incarceration um, minutes before a history test. These people are fucking jacking off to this. Injecting anxiety into math class. Mm. Social emotional learning enthusiasts happily disrupt math or English or history because to the true believers, education is merely a vehicle for their social emotional lessons. The corn chip that carries the guac straight to a kid's mouth. I can't think of a content area that needs more social emotional learning than mathematics. Uh, Educational consultant Ricky Robertson told our assembled conference room. I can't think of one that needs social emotional learning less than math. And that to me, even though I'm terrible at math, that is like that was the one redeeming quality of math that made math when I understood what I was doing. um, It eased my soul because there was only one possible answer. And I found that really peaceful. But how would a teacher manage to make social emotional learning the goal of a math class? To discover the answer, I sat through a presentation Uh, titled Embedding SEL in Math. Our mock lesson commenced with, you guessed it, discussion of our feelings about math. Anxiety, more than one teacher volunteered. The presenters showed us a series of kindergarten-level math problems that asked us to look at a bunch of shapes and ask which one doesn't belong. At the end, they revealed the correct answer. They all belong. No wrong answers. Everyone wins. See, that wasn't hard. That is not how math works. I turned to the high school math teacher next to me and asked her how she could possibly incorporate this sort of approach into algebra two. She stared back at me frozen, a frozen rictus pinned to the corners of her mouth. She seemed to think Big Brother was watching us. The only feeling apparently never affirmed in social emotional learning is mistrust of emotional conversation in place of learning. A decent number of kids actually show up hoping to learn some geometry and not burn their limited instructional time on conversations about their mental health. But from every angle, such children could only be made to feel errant and alone. In the minds of social-emotional learning advocates, healthy kids are those who share their pain during geometry. That is how a teacher knows they are emotionally regulated. They are willing to cry for the benefit of the class. As someone who has shared herself emotionally for the past 10 years, I can tell you nothing is worse for your mental health. It literally sent me to therapy. Don't do this. I am so curious. Now, my mom's a teacher, so I um I have some idea of what's going on in classrooms today. She's a middle school teacher. But if you are a teacher, if you are engaging in social emotional um, learning, please send me an email without a country podcast at gmail.com. If you're a parent and your kid does this, if you are pro it, if you're against it, I would really, I'm really very interested in, um, in this, uh, 
just mental health in general of young people and our kind of obsession with it as millennials. I'm very interested in that. So again, without a country podcast at gmail.com. That is our show for today. I got to go run some new jokes at uh, New York Comedy Club. Again, Washington, D.C. Bring someone who doesn't know Corinne Fisher. Bring someone who you think might might be interested in coming to D.C. Comedy Loft this weekend. Uh, Chloe LeBranch is opening for me. So phenomenal. What a fucking packed packed ticket that is um again one show on thursday two shows on friday two shows on saturday dc comedy loft washington dc uh ticket link is available uh in the bio on my instagram at philanthropy gal it's available at corinnefisher.com you can just go to dc comedy loft website my face is up there uh buy a ticket i'll see you this weekend we're gonna have a really fun time at these shows keep seeking the truth and uh emotionally regulate regulate yourselves i guess how are you feeling have a great week bye Thank you.